Good morning. The topic I was given for today's sermon was hope. Specifically, give an account of the hope that is in you, as it says in 1 Peter. So, naturally, I decided to talk about suffering. (laughs) I'm going to share parts of three stories with you, and if things go as planned, we'll also get to the story of the blind man and make a point about hope. One story is about me. The second story is about Mother Teresa, who was recently canonized as a saint. And the third story is a short excerpt from one of my abandoned novel manuscripts. First story. I spent a good part of my 30s with major depression, from which I am now recovered. My depression seemed to have been triggered by motherhood, although it lasted longer than most postpartum depression lasts. I want to say for the record that a lot of really good things happened to me in my 30s, not the least of which was having my son Sam, who is quite a delightful person, and who was a child that my husband Rex and I had planned for and wanted and were thrilled to have. Obviously, we continued to be thrilled to have him. (laughs) But sometime in my mid-30s, I was teaching a creative writing class, and I asked my students to draw maps of their lives. The map I drew of my own life at that time was a barren desert, and I thought, huh, there's something clearly wrong, Lene. It took that kind of exercise for me to really notice, because even when I was depressed, there were still all these great moments. Think of the beauty and delight of a literal desert, the sparkle of mica, a lizard in motion, the vast bright array of stars at night. So much loveliness. But a desert is still hard to live in, too hot during the day, too cold at night, and dry. That's how I felt, too much of this, not enough of that. I wasn't sure how I, oh, the streams I had taken for granted my entire life had dried up. I wasn't sure how I would manage to survive the trek from one rapidly evaporating puddle of murky water to the next. That desert experience of my 30s wasn't my first moment of suffering, but it was a prolonged, difficult, surprising kind of suffering. I don't know if I'll have another bout of depression like that in my life, but I do know that there is more suffering to come for me, for you, for the people we love. Spoiler alert. I also know that we are not alone in that sort of desert experience. Second story. Mother Teresa had a prolonged desert experience. After spending the first 17 years of her vocation as a nun teaching in Calcutta, she started having mystical encounters with Jesus in which he told her explicitly to start her work with the poorest of the poor, something that she referred to as simply the work. Almost as soon as she started, those mystical experiences disappeared and she felt entirely isolated from God. I am told God loves me, she wrote, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. During the nearly 50 years of the work, she had only a five-week reprieve from what she called spiritual dryness. I don't know what to make of this. I don't know why there's suffering. I certainly don't know why someone like Mother Teresa didn't have the satisfaction of feeling Christ's presence with her as she went about God's work. But despite her feelings of absence and dryness, Teresa believed Christ was with her. In one letter, she wrote that she had achieved some consolation by accepting the idea 
that Jesus wanted to go through her suffering with her. For me, this is one important source of hope. God goes through with us through our suffering. Like Teresa, like me, and like you, Jesus suffered here on earth. He went through a literal desert experience before beginning his ministry. And he went through the metaphorical desert experience of the crucifixion and everything that led up to that. Because of his experiences with suffering, I trust that Jesus has a special compassion for us in our suffering. He understands what it's like. Another source of hope is crystallized in the story of the blind man. Jesus offers a counter-narrative to the unfortunately still pervasive idea that suffering comes to us because we've done something wrong and deserve to be punished. I'm going to say more about the blind man, but first a small detour. In our house, we have an oft-quoted story from early in our marriage. I was helping Rex pack his lunch one day. Do you wash your apples at home or at work? I asked him. He looked at me sort of blankly and said, um, no. He has since learned to wash his apples. (laughs) Jesus makes a similar rhetorical move here. The Pharisees ask him if the blind man is blind because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin. Jesus' response is essentially, um, no. He isn't interested in assigning blame. He just helps the man see. He's trying to help the Pharisees too, although see too, although their blindness is metaphorical. To summarize, when we suffer, it's not because God hates us or is angry with us or is punishing us. And when we suffer, it doesn't necessarily mean we are doing something wrong. We may be on the right path. I believe St. Teresa was doing her work with great love. I know that being a wife and a mother is part of my vocation, but that doesn't apparently mean that these are roles I can inhabit without suffering. Quick caveat. Sometimes we do indeed do things that increase our own suffering and the suffering of those around us, but my point is that the suffering that comes to us is not part of some cosmic plan in which God is doling out pain to teach us a lesson or make us into better people. Yes, we may be able to become better people by working carefully through our suffering, and God can, of course, turn even the worst experiences toward good. We see that clearly in Jesus' story. The 40 days in the desert bloom into Jesus' ministry. The crucifixion is transformed into the resurrection. But I don't think God causes us to suffer in order to make a point third story. We're getting close to the end here. I'm just going to read a very short bit from a young adult manuscript I wrote, which for various reasons will not be seeing the light of publishing day. In the story, Lauren, the teenage protagonist, is recovering from a sexual assault and trying to decide if she will testify in the trial of the person who hurt her. She's Catholic, and she's in St. Aloysius Church on the campus of Gonzaga University. Like most Catholic churches, St. Al's has a large crucifix hanging in the front over the altar. Crucifixes are quite discomforting if you actually pay attention to them. I tend not to look at them very closely, and Lauren doesn't usually either, but in this excerpt, she is paying attention to the image of a person hanging on the cross in front of her. This is Lauren speaking. I wondered for the first time if the figure on the crucifix were dead or if he were still alive and caught in the throes of his own suffering. Alive and in pain, I decided, because of his feet. 
One was crossed over the other. A big nail hammered through them both. His feet were so delicate, so vulnerable, it was hard to look at them. But clearly this was someone who knew something about suffering. Hey, I whispered in my mind, I'm sorry about your feet. We're all suffering down here too. Could you send a little help? No answering whisper came as I knelt there, which was just as well. The saints could keep their visions and revelations and direct discourses with God, and I would keep myself out of the psych ward, thank you very much. But I kept my eyes on his feet and considered how he'd hung there in his own suffering for 2,000 years or so while the suffering of the world continued around him. If suffering were inescapable even for the Son of God, how could anyone expect to avoid it? That scene is supposed to be an epiphany for Lauren. In the structure of a novel, characters often have an epiphany that leads right into Act 3, the final section of the book. In religious terms, an epiphany is a manifestation of God. I wanted Lauren's epiphany to usher in the final act of her story because it was a visceral and life-altering manifestation of God. Her life changes in the next scene when she tells her parents that she has decided to testify. For this particular character in her particular set of circumstances, that decision is a sign of hope. This storytelling session has been an account of the reasons for my hope. I have to have hope because suffering exists. It's real and painful and sad. And I do have hope because God understands our suffering and goes with us through it. We are not abandoned. We are not alone. God is not trying to punish us. Whether we feel it or not, God is with us. God loves us. And as the psalmist says, God can make streams of water flow from rocks in the deserts of our lives.